so my mom was like a pseudo hippie. She wasn't a real hippie, but she was kind of a hippie. And, and uh, it had to be, I was born in 66, so like around 71, uh, she had this boyfriend named Joel. I used to remember his last name, but I, I can't remember it anymore. Uh, and he drove a little Porsche 912. And so I had to sit in the well of the car in the back, and he had the stereo speakers, you know, in, in the back. A whole lot of love came on. I, I was five years old, almost six, and uh, I heard this the swirling in the stereo speakers of the theremin next to the guitar. And I remember I poked my head up, you know, behind the well. I'm like, what is this, you know? And uh, my mom was, oh, that's the guitar. That's 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 Led Zeppelin. You know, that's Jimmy Page. You know, she knew. She had the answers like right then. And um, I was just like, I don't know. I can't describe exactly the sensation. It was like it was overwhelming audio fear. I think it was just like, how could I? You know, I have to recreate that noise right now. You know, at that age. And we were moving to France for a year. You know, uh, a couple weeks later after I heard the music and um, there's this place in Hollywood on Fairfax and Third called Andre's. It's like a little cafeteria style uh, Italian restaurant and we always ate there. And so the, the night we were going to the airport, we went to Andre's first to eat dinner and they had a newsstand. And when we were leaving, we went by the newsstand and my mom picked up a picture of Cream magazine. And there was a picture of Jimmy Page on the cover, you know, with the dragon suit on and she goes oh this is Jimmy Page this is the, the, the guy making that noise you know that record you know and uh, I saw that picture and I was like oh my god like I you know I never seen anything like that in my life so the imagery with the sound um, completely captivated me you know at five and a half years old and from that point on it was all about mom play me something like that you know play me something like that and I didn't really uh, get to hear it again until we got back from France you know and, and she had Zeppelin 2 and uh, I think that's all I listened to until I was about seven years old or eight years old Zeppelin 2 you know it's just like you know the theremin coming into the solo into that, that riff and then you know the, the, the way they use reverb um, back then was just like a plate, you know, so like everything had plate reverb on it, everything sounded far away and scary and damp, you know, and when I would listen to, to that record, I just pictured like, I couldn't picture the band, you know, I didn't know what a band did, you know, I mean, I didn't know what, you know, I didn't know what Jimmy Page playing looked like, or I didn't have any idea who John Bonham was, or what Robert Plant looked like, or anything, so I just kind of pictured like these dark figures in a really cloudy, like, overcast environment being very moist and, and depressing. And for some reason, I was so drawn to that. And then the next record I, I discovered was my mom's boyfriend. He had this weird import called Black Sabbath's Greatest Hits. And I, I forgot who the artist is, but the imagery on the cover is just like all these skeletons, like, you know, in a, in a community thousands of little skeletons and the first song I heard was Iron Man and I was like oh there's more of this you know what I mean there's this like it was like 
a horror movie for your ears, you know what I mean, kind of a thing. And and I would just stare at these record covers, you know, especially you know that Zeppelin too, you know, Robert Plant looks like Lucille Ball. <laughs> you know, I would stare at that for hours, like, like wow, that guy is that guy a Nazi? You know, it was like such a, a weird all that imagery from those first two records, and then the sound of those two records. So, I mean, I got to say to this day, that's really my core is those two records. You know, it's like, you know, and that Sabbath record had like War Pigs on it. It was like a greatest hits record of the time, like 1972, 1973. So they only had the coolest shit out there, you know. And uh, then my mom tried to get me into other stuff at the time. You know, like the Stones and Hendrix. And, and I like Janis Joplin, um, but a lot of the stuff she played me, it didn't have that. It had more of a country feel than this like depressing, dark, heavy guitars. So I didn't latch onto that stuff right away. You know, I kept searching and searching for you know the he heavy music. And um, you know, so eventually I had the the whole Zeppelin catalog by the time I was 12. My mom had this little acoustic guitar. So when we got back from France, um, I just had this little thing. And somehow I learned a D chord, and an A chord, and a G chord. I was six years old, and I wrote a song out of those three chords. It's called Sunshine, right? That Danny Tall guy that uh, was my best friend, um, he wrote the words to it. And um, I don't think I remember how it goes anymore. But, um, for some reason, I knew it was important to write my own stuff. You know, I didn't know anybody else's music, <laughs> so I was like, okay, I know chords. You know, how do I put all this stuff together? You know, and um, it was a journey learning how to play the guitar. I didn't have lessons. You know, I had one lesson with this guy Gunnar's Nubis at Ballyards Guitars when I was 11, and uh, he told me he wasn't going to teach me anything by Led Zeppelin. And so that was the last lesson I ever had. I was like, fuck this guy. I want to learn Stairway to Heaven. You know, who did? And um, when I was 12, um, I met Slash, and he was the only like real rock and roll guy that I knew at the time. And we were you know, growing up, and we ended up going to junior high school and high school together. And I was already playing. I've been playing for a few years before I met him. You know, not real seriously, but you know, I was I was playing. You know, and I had um, this little black Les Paul Jr. It was like a, a copy that my mom bought me. And a little PV Pacer amplifier. My mom played pedal steel, so I had like some gear that I could steal from my mom. And um, then he started taking lessons. Uh, this guy Robert, Hollywood, not a Hollywood music, I forgot what he's called. This little, this little house, like Fairfax and Santa Monica. And he was learning songs, you know. He was like, you know, Tracy, I learned, you know, the let out, you know, shit like that. I'm like, well, show me that, you know. And, and so the more he learned, the more I was interested. So I had to buy magazines to learn, you know. And I learned how to really solo, you know, pentatonic solos from Tony Iommi. He, he had actually, in the key of, of A, had put a guitar neck and showed like all the notes you could play in the key of A and like some basic patterns. And so I could play really good in the key of A. I mean, it's like, it's like, oh yeah. I learned this from Tony Iommi in the magazine. And uh, by the time, you know, we were like 13, 14, we could really play the guitar, you know? I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing, you know? Like, uh, the 
first like Def Leppard and Iron Maiden records had come out, you know, stuff like that, you know, beyond Van Halen and, and Ozzy and Sabbath, and, and then we were really into Aerosmith, really into Zeppelin, and it was just all about learning all those riffs, and um, you know, we had enough friends that played drums and bass and stuff like that, that we had little bands, and, and uh, it got, you know, we were pretty competitive. It was, it was, it was the first time in my life that it was anything I was competitive at. Know, and uh, I was racing BMX and stuff like that, but I just wasn't competitive. You know, what I mean, I just I won all the time, so I didn't I didn't care. You know, I was like, oh, whatever, I'm good at this. You know, but guitar was a struggle because I don't have a good ear. You know, I can't just hear music and go, oh yeah, it's this. You know, I've never been able to do that to this day. You know, um, there's still Jimmy Page solos and Randy Rhodes solos that I want to learn because I just I never had the patience to like sit there and go, oh yeah. Um, you know, so like going up along the way, you know, I mean, first to see it, Mick Mars, you know, I mean, it was, that was a huge thing, you know, he was, made such an impact, you know, and, and I know a lot of people, you know, think of accolades and stuff like that, but I mean, at the time, there was nobody like him. He was fucking nasty, man. you know, just like really tight, really nasty, really a cool kind of distortion, and that's what I love. I love distortion, you know, and as I get older, um, I really appreciate a lot of the psychedelic rock from the 60s and stuff like that because they were experimenting with distortion and doing really cool stuff, you know, and in, even in Cambodia, you know, there's this uh, documentary, um, Cambodia Rocks, it's, it's called, we'll never, <clears throat> I'll Never Forget You, or, or Don't Think I'll Forget You, I think is the name of the documentary. And they had this insane psychedelic scene in Cambodia in the 60s, you know, like right as the Vietnam War was happening. And um, so I've always been drawn to the noise a guitar can make in, in an uncontrollable way. So you make the guitar uncontrollable and then you control it. You know, that's, that's kind of my philosophy. That's what Hendrix did, that's what Randy did live. You know, they're just like, fuck, you know, turn it on. <laughs> you know, now make it happen, you know. Um, the studio is the exact opposite. You know, it's like, you know, do really cool shit in the studio. You, know, you have all these tools available, use them, you know what I mean? Like, you know, every now and then just record something that people don't expect, you know. And, live you don't have those luxuries so that you let the guitar just go nuts and you just hope that it does things you know every night that are different and mind-blowing and I've been playing that way um, since I was 14 or 15 you know, just distortion you know, delay you know, anything to make it sound damp and depressing and scary you know? um, it's weird because I used to really love Nugent when I was like 12 13 and it was because of Stranglehold, because that's pretty, pretty fucking depressing piece of music. Um, but if it wasn't for the rest of his stuff, which is like more major key, happier sounding rock and roll, generic rock and roll, um, I might not have ever been exposed to that as part of my style. But you know, if I'm going to learn Stranglehold, that means I had to learn the other three sides of that double album. You know what I mean? So that's where really where I started picking up on, you know, basic rock and roll blues, and so, 
you know, the blues is really what's, that's the discipline. And the blues is the discipline that goes into creating the metal. You know, it's like, okay, I can, here's, here's the chords, this is, this is how it works. Distortion. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. And, uh, you know, I went to, in junior high school, uh, we had a music teacher, Mr. Hobby, who Slash and I and this guy Philip Davidson and another guy, um, Marlon, we were all in this little classical guitar ensemble the whole time we were in junior high school. So we had some classical education too, uh, but we, you know, we were learning green sleeves, you know, we weren't learning smoke on the water. So, but all those things kind of, you know, they creep into your style, you know, eventually. And, and for me, that's what, you know, the identifiable LA gun stuff is a combination of, you know, those things that I learned as a really young. You know, I mean, and today, uh, we've got two records in three years, and I've only approached those two records in the same way I did first LA Guns records, you know, it's just like, this is what I love, and it's my sound, when Phil sings on it, it defines my sound, and the other one, you know, that chemistry is like, identifiable with this band, you know, it's, a lot of bands are intangible, wow, they're great, I don't know why, but they're great, but when I write a piece of music with that really weird fucking guitar sound, and Phil sings on it, that's LA Guns. So really my first band was uh, my friend Danny Tull that I met at summer camp when I was six years old. And by the time we were like eight or nine, he lived at, he lived about a mile away from me. And I'm like, hey, you know, I want to teach you how to play bass. Can you get a bass, you know? He's like, yeah, I'll get a bass. I want to be the man, you know? And our other friend from camp is this guy Dave Melford, who played drums. And he already played drums. Like, you know, he knew Mongoloid by Devo, you know, like, like it was cool. And, uh, so it was just the three of us uh, to start with, and we would get together at Danny Tull's garage, and, we, and our set consisted of Stranglehold, Stairway to Heaven, and Mongoloid, and I think and I think Purple Haze, and I sang Purple Haze and Stranglehold, you know, not into a microphone or anything. I just sang it. Um, so that was our band. It was called uh, Pyrus, and I, I don't remember how to spell it, but it's a Greek god, so it's it's easy to find. Um, and we played parties, you know, by the time we got into junior high school and, and uh, learned rock and roll by Led Zeppelin and what else did we know? We didn't know a lot of stuff. We jammed a lot, you know what I mean? I was really into jamming, you know, just like, you know, the whole middle section from the live version of A Whole Lot of Love. Let's pretend we're playing that. And we would do that for an hour, you know, in front of, you know, eight kids or whatever. And uh, that was that. And that eventually, as got into high school, uh, I met Rob Gardner, who was the, the drummer that replaced Dave Melford, and, uh, but Danny hung out with me for a long time, and uh, then eventually we got Mike Jagos, who was our first singer, and uh, I think in 1982, right before I was, you know, sort of graduated high school, uh, we changed the, you know, called LA Guns. That's it. That's the only band I, you know, started there and that's where I still am. You know? Rob was in school. Rob Gardner was my high school buddy. Uh, Danny Tull I met at summer camp. And Mike Jagos was a friend of Rob's from like uh, middle school. I think they went to 
to John Burroughs and I went to Bancroft. So Rob told me about Mike. And then, uh, now let's see. That's not true. I went to see somebody knew Dave. Okay, Rob knew Dave. That was Mike Jago's brother. Dave Jago's. He was like classical, badass, you know, Klaus Mine kind of singer, you know. And he had a band called Shire. They were playing at the Roosevelt Hotel. <clears throat> I remember this. I went there, and Izzy was the bass player for that band. And they did like five songs, and immediately after I walked right to Izzy, hey man, who are you? You know, like, oh, you know, I'm this guy. You know, we're like, oh, cool. And then we became friends, like right away. And uh, we went to a Shire rehearsal at Dave and Mike's house, and Mike Jago said, hey, I'm a singer, you know, if you're looking for a singer, you know, I want to be your singer. And we was like, well, you know, I don't know, man, you know, uh, can you really sing, you know, can you sing like your brother? And he's like, like, I'm, I'm better than my brother, you know, like, oh, no way, nobody's better than Dave, you know. But he was, he was great, man, you know, and, and he was like that Dio kind of thing, too, you know, just like, like really metal, and I really liked metal. You know, and uh, and he's on that. You know, we did a recording. We have an EP that we did in like '84. Um, that's Mike Jagos, Rob Gardner, and a guy named named Ula Bike from Denmark, who was King Diamond's bass player back then. He's in, and he committed suicide there. It's sad, but um, that was my first real band. So we called it LA Guns, and we played metal. We were off to the races. That somehow evolved. Mike Jagos got fired. And I knew Axel from Izzy, and they had a band, Hollywood Rose, but they had broken up because Izzy joined London. And uh, we fired, Michael got fired, and I just asked Axel, hey, do you want to sing for LA Guns for a while? And he's like, yeah. And so he was at LA Guns for about a year, and then uh, Axel got fired from LA Guns. And Izzy got quit London. And me and Axel lived together, and then we decided that we were, well, you can't fire me, and, you know, we can still play music together. And I'm like, yeah. So we had a great idea for a label, and the label would be called Guns N' Roses. You know, we would make our, our own recordings, you know, label. Five minutes later, we said, no, that that should be the name of the band. It's a great name, you know, Guns N' Roses. That was the first thing. And, uh, you know, we did it. We, I called Izzy and said, hey, we're going to do a new band, and he was all in, and uh, we were Guns N' Roses. And then about you know six, seven months later, things got not fun, and uh, I bailed, and we did LA Guns, and I met Mick Cripps at a Guns N' Roses gig that I went to go see Guns N' Roses at UCLA, and uh, my friend Nicky B, who owned a rehearsal hall, he was a drummer, and he was also the drummer for the Weirdos. Uh, he has a lot of history. Um, and the, the original band, yeah, I mean, that, that classic lineup was beginning. But uh, but Phil, we imported from England, you know, Alan Jones, our manager, he knew Phil. But I was like, hey, I want Phil Lewis to sing for this man. Oh, I know Phil, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he brought him over, and he walked up to the mic for an audition, and, I, and he didn't say anything. Go, you got the gig, you know, it's that simple. And then um, Mick, Cripps. Uh, he was the bass player at the time, and he wanted to play guitar, so uh, 
you know, which wanted to be a two-guitar player band anyways. And uh, I had met Kelly through Angels and Bane, which you're probably familiar with, um, out here in New York when I was 19, which is a totally unrelated story. But um, he got in a bad motorcycle accident. I knew that he had flown back to L.A. to recuperate. And I just said, well, Kelly would be the right guy, you know, if we could get a bass player. And uh, called him. And he flew out here in a body cast, out back, or he flew to L.A., did his first L.A. Guns gig with Phil and everybody, sold out at the Whiskey, uh, you know, with a cast on his leg, sitting on a chair, you know, with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, you know? and uh, a couple minutes later we got signed. 